And if anything in my life mattered, getting it right, this was this was that moment. I said, I've never seen anything like this in my life, and I never would have expected to see it. And it was a letter signed by Secretary Rumsfeld, basically laying out the protocol for having AWACS direct a fighter to intercept and shoot down an airliner. That uh, pressing the, the pickle button, which releases a weapon, is a huge, you're taking a, you're, you're taking a life at that point. It's a huge responsibility. And he said, I will never forget his words. I think someone detonated a nuclear weapon somewhere in the United States. He was the aircraft commander and, and basically looked at everybody and said, uh, you know, folks, if there's any question, um, we're going to war. And I said, it's kind of like when you watch the water hit the, the sand on a beach and then you watch it recede. That's what it looked like on the scope is all these dots and indicators of aircraft just ebbed away. I mean, it, it, it was just the most remarkable thing until there were literally five or six aircraft airborne. It was very somber. Everybody was quiet. Everybody was focusing. And it's just a surreal moment because you have 36 other people besides myself saying, okay, wow, we are really at war in our, in our own sovereign country. In the last episode of Seeking Context, we heard from AWACS crew members and pilots who had to quickly make the transition from a peacetime mindset to a time of war. Today, we will hear about the actions of those airmen as they defended American airspace throughout that fateful day. Since the last episode aired, I had the opportunity to interview two more airmen who helped broaden the story of our collective national response to the attacks. Lieutenant Kelly Strong was one of the radar operators in the back of the AWACS piloted by Jeff Van Dusen, helping to provide command and control to the fighter aircraft that flew to protect the New York and DC airspace. And Peter Braxton was a KC-10 pilot, also airborne at the time of the attacks, who would provide air refueling to the AWACS and fighters throughout the day. Like those in the towers and the Pentagon, the first responders and those on board the four hijacked aircraft, these Air Force aviators had no time to plan or coordinate. Their actions on 9-11 were underpinned by a lifetime of education and training and a foundation of shared values. We return now to our story back in the heartland at Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma. At Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma, Brigadier General Ben T. Robinson was the commander of 37 AWACS aircraft, a command and control platform the Air Force would employ to defend American airspace that day and in the years to follow. General Robinson describes the experience of that moment for the base-wide staff meeting taking place in his office and the immediate steps he and his team took to set up an air defense effort around the country. So we had a television there in the corner of the room and we, she turns it on and we're sitting there discussing uh, what a bad day looks like and we saw the second airplane hit. I said, I, I think everybody in the room knows we're on some kind of an attack and and we're going to be called upon and we're going to be called upon early and it's going to last a long time uh after that little talk i said let's let's get back together here in 45 minutes and let me know what your what your statuses are i said you know what to do now go do it and you know the three leadership styles of authoritarian democratic and laissez-faire it really was kind of a laissez-faire leadership it was i had tremendous confidence in the squadron commanders the group commanders they knew what to do. The last thing they needed to do would be slowed down by me telling them what to do. So I kind of gave them the why. They knew the what and how. And 45 minutes later, we got back together. Uh, we started building crews right there. You know, we're talking 17, 18 people on a crew and sending crews home and recording what time we, we appointed a designated lead squadron. They immediately set up a mini AOC uh with a1 through a6 uh we took over one of the big scheduling rooms and it was just incredible as the team at tinker air force base began scheduling aircrew for 24-hour operations one of general robinson's aircraft was already airborne en route to a training mission at shaw air force base south carolina in response to the attacks on the world trade center the federal aviation administration had ordered all aircraft to land 
but the crew of Century 4-0 knew instinctively that an aircraft attack on American soil would need AWACS coverage for a new mission. Flight engineer Scott Lindholm describes the crew's interaction with air traffic controllers in Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock approach tells us um, what asking what our plan was, and we're like, well, we don't know yet, but we're not going to land. And the guy's like, well, you got to get out of here because you're in my way. You know, I'm, I'm having to land everybody. So. And pilot Jeff Van Dusen recalls the conversation with his co-pilot and air traffic control, needing to quickly communicate the fact that he was not going to land and that as aircraft commander, he would fly his jet to support a defense mission that he knew would be coming. The co-pilot at the time um, was like, uh, I don't know what to say. I said, just tell him we're following, just follow us. And he was, he was like, well, I don't know what to really say. We haven't really talked about it. I said, okay, I got the radios. Mm-hmm. We're due regard, operational uh, flight following. By declaring due regard, Captain Van Dusen was informing air traffic control that he was taking personal responsibility for the navigation of his aircraft. Within the AWACS community, Captain Van Dusen's radio call declaring due regard would be remembered 20 years later as a decision that encapsulated the right balance of decisiveness and independent thinking required of warfighters at all levels. Jeffrey, as you know, went to went to set up an orbit between Washington and New York uh, using due regard. He re- refused to land, uh, take the follow the FAA orders and land. He said, "We're military airplane. We're going. We're going to the site. Sound of the guns." As Century Four Zero headed toward the sound of the guns, the crew prepared for their new mission. Lieutenant Kelly Strong, a radar operator working in the back of the AWACS, describes the various team members that make up the crew and their actions that morning as they reacted to unfolding events. In the weapons section, you might have someone who does check-in of the aircraft. You might have someone who does, um, you know, targeting. So they're going to be the person that tells them, you know, the air-to-air controller, go, go, go to this air track and engage that air track. You might also have the same thing with like strike control, where you're going to say, go bomb this location. So each person gets parsed a job based on what the mission is. Mm-hmm. The the ABMs in that weapons part of the AWACS jet are all led by what's called a senior director. And that is a person who has gone through an upgrade process to manage ABMs on the jet. So the radio from the front that said, um, hey, they just came across and they said an airplane ran into the World Trade Center. That's all. That's kind of all we had, but you know, back of your neck, you start going, what just, you know, just as a human being, as an American, you're going, what just happened? But what we immediately did was, from a surveillance perspective, was immediately, even though we weren't part of that, we were way away from, from New York City, um, we immediately went into, okay, let's be a little bit more alert. So I would say that first radio call from the flight deck um, just kind of put us on guard got our systems a little bit more polished up. And as the air surveillance officer, what that means for me is um, settings on the radar. So I might have been doing just a generic sweep and I might now be looking for a little bit more uh, fidelity on tracks. Is this tagged up as an airliner? You know, are things squawking the right um, identification, friend or foe, IFF, those kinds of things. And then the second call came back from the flight deck that, no kidding, another aircraft had hit and we knew something was going on. As Century 4-0 headed east toward the New York airspace, they would soon receive instructions from the North American Aerospace Defense Command, commonly known as NORAD. Lieutenant Strong recalls the first orders they received. We did have NORAD come over the SATCOM radio, which is satellite comms, uh, secure radio, and basically take us from our mission. They took ownership using the NORAD permissions. Uh, North American Defense is NORAD. Um, And basically they said, here's your mission. The priority was for us to try and vector towards where they'd lost contact with Flight 93. And so we were vectored kind of to the Northeast to try and get eyes on this aircraft because if they're not squawking IFF, the only way you can see an aircraft is by having a radar hit them and get returns. United Airlines Flight 93, a Boeing 757 with 37 passengers and seven crew, had departed Newark International Airport at 8.42 a.m. and was hijacked at 9.28 a.m. over Ohio 
turning to the southeast on a flight path towards Washington, D.C. Lieutenant Strong would point the AWACS radar towards the last reported position of Flight 93. Um, what I'm doing is I'm taking our big honking radar and just max range. You know, if we know we're heading to where we need it to be, I just wanted to see as far as I could with any radar capability that was there. While the crew of the AWACS searched for Flight 93 and any other commercial aircraft that air traffic control could not find, leaders at NORAD started contacting other defense aircraft airborne at the time to find out who could assist. One of those aircraft was a KC-10, co-piloted by Lieutenant Peter Braxton. Lieutenant Braxton describes the KC-10 mission. The KC-10 is, you know, a DC-10, it's McDonnell Douglas DC-10 variant, 84% the same as a DC-10, except it carries 340,000 pounds of fuel. But uh, it's designed for force extension. So if you think about the jet used to fly just in the F-15, F-16, coalition aircraft, uh, sister services, the U.S. Marines, the, the U.S. Navy, the F-18, um, British Tornadoes, um, Netherlands or Australian F-16s, they all need fuel to kind of get closer to the what I call the forward edge of the battle area, right? To, to kind of put your weapons down and, and fire for effect uh, downrange. And the KC-10 would, would augment that. So we, can, we can be refueled by another KC-10 or KC-135, and then we can offload our fuel to a B-1 bomber or an F-15 or any, any type of jet that needs fuel. While Jeff Van Dusen, the pilot of Century 4-0, was on his first flight as a mission commander, Lieutenant Braxton was on his first operational flight in the KC-10. Having completed pilot training only months before, Lieutenant Braxton had approximately 15 hours flying time in the aircraft that morning. Um, and so in the fall of 2001, I was going through initial qual, initial qualification, which um, our, our, our training unit was actually at McGuire Air Force Base. So all the simulator. squadron, I was assigned to the second air refueling squadron uh, at McGuire Air Force Base. And mm -hmm. um, one of the unique things is, is my graduation date was September 8th, 2001. I graduated from um, initial qual and I was a fully qualified pilot. So my first day of flying was going to be and was on 9-11, 2001. That was the plan. It was supposed to be about a six-hour mission take off around 6, 6.30 a.m. and then fly to, fly to noon, be, be home by lunch. Probably showing up at 2, you know, 2.15 or something like that in the morning. But I remember it was a very early morning, you know, hot coffee, fall, brisk day, and it was my first day of work. Um, so, you know, haircut, boots shined, you know, just the you know, green bean, butter bar, uh, which is a second lieutenant. Um, and, and I showed up and I was flying with, a very seasoned, this is what they typically do, is they'll pair you up, the, the most junior person will be with the most senior pilot, a very seasoned lieutenant colonel with a head full of gray hair. Um, and yeah, I think, we, I think that we took off around 6 a.m. That, that day. After takeoff, Lieutenant Braxton's training mission was relatively normal for the first four hours of their flight, practicing air refueling procedures with another KC-10. Because the aircraft was not monitoring air traffic control frequencies while conducting exercises in a military training airspace over the Atlantic Ocean, they had no knowledge of events unfolding in New York until contacted by NORAD, the defense agency that had just minutes before redirected Century 4-0 to search for the location of United Flight 93. Lieutenant Braxton recalls the puzzling radio call he first received from NORAD. I was um, initially off the coast of New Jersey. I was called by the Eastern Air Defense Sector of uh, NORAD, North American Aerospace Defense, call sign Huntress. They called our call sign Team 22, and they asked us for our state, our status. Like, And I, I at that point, will tell you, I was as confused as anybody could be confused as to who this person was asking for our status and what they wanted to know. At this point, Lieutenant Braxton looked to the aircraft commander, a seasoned lieutenant colonel with decades of combat and peacetime experience, for guidance on how to respond to that most unexpected radio call from NORAD. But the lieutenant colonel I was flying with was not confused. He was absolutely understood the gravity of NORAD calling our jet. Um, they wanted to know our status of the jet, which was, you know, where were we located? What's our altitude? What 
cardinal direction are we heading? Um, our crew complement, how much fuel we, we carry in, in terms of kind of hours and minutes. And, and then most importantly, probably is how operational were we? Did, could we, did we have the ability to uh, offload fuel? And as soon as that happened, um, they told us to turn left direct to JFK and hold awaiting further instructions, contact New York Center. While he didn't know what had happened or exactly why they were being called, the fact that NORAD had interrupted their sortie with no warning or prior coordination and reassigned them to a new mission told the aircraft commander that something life-changing had probably occurred. Immediately, the lieutenant colonel turned to me and he said, I will never forget his words, I think someone detonated a nuclear weapon somewhere in the United States. While the nature of the incident was different than the colonel's first guest, the impact on service members that day and in the years that followed was perhaps just as significant as if a nuclear weapon had been detonated. At Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C., F-16 pilot Heather Penny and her flight lead elected to launch without weapons, prepared to give their lives in a suicide mission to protect the Capitol. While they were preparing to launch, Sergeant Nutz McNulty was making phone calls to airline reservation desks in an effort to provide Heather and her flight lead with intelligence on what airplanes they should look for and where to search. And, and because of the work that that Nuts had done, we actually believed that there were up to potentially three unaccounted for aircraft. Right. And we had been talking with Potomac Control specifically, and we knew that there was one that had been somewhere near Cleveland and had turned around and then come down. And so that they believed that there was one that was down coming low over the river, the Potomac River. With no time to lose, Heather and her flight lead scrambled to take off as soon as possible. Okay, let's go. And so we, you know, run down to life support. I'm putting all my gear on and making sure I don't forget anything because I knew that if, if, first of all, I wasn't going to be able to run back <laughs> to go pick up anything I forgot. Right. Um, and if anything in my life mattered, getting it right, this was, this was that moment. As a young wingman who had never flown in combat, nor been taught scramble procedures to launch in a time pressure situation, Heather ably kept up with her flight lead, Sass. Well, he's still plugged in and Sass is beginning to taxi. And I'm yelling at him, pull the chocks, pull the chocks. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna have to jump the chocks in afterburner just so I can get going. And the chocks suddenly release and I lurch forward like that and kind of step on the brakes and little and everyone is still under my jet. My crew chief is still plugged in. I'm taxiing, which is a big no-no, right? You never move with anyone under your jet, but they haven't finished pulling the pins. They're pulling the pins out of my gear. They're pulling the pins out of my tanks. They're pulling the pins out of my chaff and flare. They're underneath me. And it was, it was, I'm just getting ready to turn left on taxiway echo. And when my crew chief says, Godspeed, and that was the last of that I that I heard from him that day. As Heather and her flight lead take off, they are struck by a moment of stillness on that chaotic day. And we, like Billy, we, you know, we turn to the northwest. There was nobody in the sky. It was so quiet. It was just surreal. And I look down and I see the the Pentagon and the, the black smoke. And, you know, I spread wide on SAS to the, to the north of him. And we head out over Pennsylvania and we never found anything. Um, he had taken us out, I'm, I'm again, just guessing, maybe 100 miles to the northwest, maybe not quite that far. But he, we, it's not like we could have kept going because if we had chosen just a little bit of the wrong azimuth and there was another aircraft inbound, we would have left DC vulnerable and uncovered. So all we really needed to do was sanitize the airspace in front of us, but then we had to get back and set up a defensive combat air patrol and then and start to goalie from there. While pilot Jeff Van Dusen and the crew of Century 4-0 were headed east, they would not arrive in the DC area to join the fight with Heather and her flight lead for some time. 
Lieutenant Strong describes the challenge. The AWACS is not a fast jet. It's not a slow jet, but but the range of the radar is about, about 250 nautical miles. So, you know, not not that far. So it's like taking a, a saucer cup and just moving it over the U.S. Until the AWACS arrived, Heather and her flight lead, along with other fighter aircraft, would set up their own combat air patrol to clear the airspace. So SAS brings us back and we're working with Potomac Air Traffic Control. We're working with Potomac TRACON because we don't have any AWAC support. So SAS is up on a counter-rotating combat air patrol where, so someone is always looking out to the Northwest, just the other person is looking to the Southeast. And then, you know, we just, keep on spinning that way. So we're augmenting with our radars what Potomac can see with their radar. Without AWAC support, the fighters decided to teach the civilian air traffic controllers how to communicate using military terminology and tactics to describe the location of aircraft that the fighters needed to investigate. They, they were amazing. Yeah, the mental agility of, of the air traffic controllers was phenomenal because it sounds like, okay, so Take the, the DCA Vortac. You know, it's a navigation um, it's a navigation aid that airliners and aircraft use uh, to, uh, to to find place, you know, to, to navigate in the sky. And um, so they're named in their physical places, and the DCA Vortac is on Brighton National Airport, right? Which was kind of like dead center to DC. So so SAS says, take, the, take that Vortac, and I know its name is DCA, but let's just call it Bullseye. Okay, and if you see something that is east of that vortex for like 20 miles, let's say it's 3,000 feet, I want you to say bullseye 090, which is the east radial, um, 20 miles, 3,000 feet. And poof, like that, they got it. And so they started using our bullseye language to help point out radar contacts. And then they started tacking on their, um, their transponder frequencies and telling us, what the call sign was, where they, what their origin point was, and where they were going. With a goalie combat air patrol, Heather and her flight lead would orbit directly above the Capitol, serving as a last line of defense for Washington, D.C., and investigating any aircraft that wasn't appropriately communicating with air traffic control. And so it really, because the airspace got really cluttered and dirty with all the emergency responders, they were crucial in helping us um, really filter out who was friendly and who was unknown. Because there was still a portion of, of aviation, general aviation, that had not seen the news and had no idea that there was this big grounding order. They had no idea about any of this. So we actually spent most of the rest of the day running into little Cessna 172s and bumping them to turn them away from the D.C. area and, and have them go home. In addition to small general aviation aircraft that were unaware of the day's events, thousands of international flights bound for the United States would need to be informed of the grounding order, diverted to airports in other countries, and investigated by fighter aircraft if they failed to comply with air traffic control directives. Alarming. Well, you got to imagine that there's 3,000 airplanes in the system. They're coming to the United States. I mean, they took off from Australia. They took off from, from South Africa, from all over Europe, uh, from all over South America, and they're all coming to the United States. And now we've got to stop all 3,000 airplanes that are coming in from outside, plus all those domestic airplanes, all those general aviation airplanes. Everybody's got to get on the ground. And sometime that morning, I'll say probably around 11 o'clock, uh, General Arnold called me and said, there are 11 airplanes we can't count for. There are 11 airplanes that the FAA says they do not know where they are. We have to assume that these 11 airplanes are still out there as potential hostile airplanes that could hit targets. Because of the direct attacks on New York and the Pentagon, the threat to the eastern seaboard was obvious, but defense leaders took action to establish defensive measures for the entire United States as soon as possible. Fighter aircraft were scrambled at bases across the country with AWACS support to sanitize priority airspaces. General Robinson's team at Tinker Air Force Base had three aircraft that were immediately available because of training missions in process. The first was Jeff Van Dusen and the crew of Century 40. 
A second AWACS on a training mission to Jacksonville, Florida, would be assigned an important mission. Uh, Jeffrey, which we know well, uh, he had taken off early that morning on another airplane that was uh, headed to Florida. Uh, the airplane headed to Florida was going to work with the Jacksonville uh, guard guys, and he gets uh, that airplane gets assigned to the president. And the crew of a third aircraft at McCord Air Force Base in Tacoma, Washington, would receive some extraordinary instructions before departing on a mission to protect the west coast of the United States. Third airplane was a student airplane, a training airplane. It was up at McCord, and, uh, and that's quite a story. The, the, as they were, they, they were on the airplane, didn't know what was going on, and base ops called and told them to shut down and that the aircraft commander and the mission crew commander should come into base ops, that they needed to meet with someone. One of the base officers and the wing commander was there uh, of the airlift wing, airlift wing there at McCord. He said, come here, gentlemen, took them back in an office and handed them a letter said, I've never seen anything like this in my life and I never would have expected to see it. And it was a letter signed by Secretary Rumsfeld basically laying out the protocol for having AWACS direct a fighter to intercept and shoot down an airliner. The rules of engagement from Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld were disseminated to aircrew around the country as quickly as possible. While the signed letter was shown to crews still on the ground, those airborne received instructions from NORAD while their mission was in progress. Radar operator Kelly Strong recalls the impact of the directive for the crew of Century 40. Um, but yeah, we, def we definitely got past that and that was through our SATCOM uh, radio. Yeah. I understood that the entire dynamic of the U.S. just changed because this was a this was a huge decision uh, on the shoulders of the SecDef at the time to make that kind of call. At Langley Air Force Base, Virginia, the letter was received by intelligence personnel who relayed the information to Lieutenant Colonel Squat Fega and his wingman, Captain Phil Stodick, as they were preparing to take off. It sounds bizarre. It sounds like something out of a movie, but literally as I was climbing up the ladder to get into the jet, the intelligence officer came out and, and said, hey, we just got word and, and here is the definitive answer on your, on your ROE. Captain Stodick and his flight lead took off en route to Washington, D.C., where they would join fighters from the D.C. National Guard protecting the Capitol. As Captain Stodick recalls, the mission was not without challenges. Yeah, so we took off and uh, it didn't go great from the start because we took off and Squat's radar immediately broke. So he was leading this mission and without a radar, there's not a whole lot that, uh, that he can do as, fine as, as far as finding airplanes. And, and uh, so he immediately passed the tactical lead to me since I had a working radar and we went up to Washington, D.C. and uh, started uh, intercepting airplanes. That day we took off and, and immediately talked to air traffic control and they said, you're cleared uh, north, any altitude you wanna go, cleared where you, need to, where you need to be. By the time they arrived on station, the F-16s from Andrews Air Force Base had already taught air traffic control how to work with fighters attempting to identify and investigate suspicious aircraft. The AWACS was not yet in range to assist. No, initially we were talking to air traffic control. And so, there's another thing that was strange. We're talking to civilian controllers and initially they're kind of telling us what they, you know, we've got traffic here and we want you to go look at that and, and find out who it is. So that was kind of our role. And initially there is just identifying who's out there over the city and, and seeing what, uh, what they're up to. With a massive effort underway to evacuate members of Congress and the Senate, in addition to medical evacuations from the Pentagon, the airspace in and around the White House, Capitol, and Pentagon grew extremely crowded. Because air traffic control did not have a list of the local, police, civilian, and military helicopters supporting evacuation efforts, the fighters would be asked to confirm the identity of any aircraft that might pose a threat. And I think it was just a mess because there were a lot. Of, there was a lot of air traffic over Washington D.C. that uh, I don't know how much it was coordinated, but a lot. But it was a lot of helicopters flying over the city, getting DVs to various places that they needed to go, and police helicopters, and kind of uh, you know rescue and various things like that. And and it seems like there wasn't a good handle of of where everybody is and who's who. That's initially we got up over Washington, D.C. and they gave us a target and it was very low. And so we went from 25,000 feet down to uh, 
you know, about 500 to 1,000 feet over the city pretty quickly and started finding helicopters. At that point, we just said, this looks like a, uh, you know, a government helicopter. This looks like a police helicopter. And they said, okay. And then they typically have us find somebody else. So right. initially, it was just a lot of identifying various uh, helicopters down low over the city. As air traffic control, fighter jets, and AWACS worked together to clear the skies of all aircraft, Americans and service members around the country found themselves in a moment of high uncertainty. The nature, breadth, and origin of the attacks was unknown. Those who witnessed the attacks realized that the world had fundamentally changed and that the world of September 11th was something new. But some, who had not watched the events unfold on TV, continued to live a bit longer in the world of September 10th, the time before. C-5 pilot Bobby Wolf drove past the burning Pentagon rushing home to Dover Air Force Base, Delaware, knowing that his squadron would be called upon soon. But before he could make it home, Lieutenant Wolf would encounter a delay. So listen, the day itself carries a lot of gravity, but sometimes... Um, there is a little levity in in the moments, and uh, and and I can attribute that to just pure, uh, unadulterated uh, bureaucracy and adherence to the rule of law, which I often uh, appreciate. So I, I found my way um, out of D.C. Uh, past uh, Annapolis, where the Naval Academy is, and onto the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Uh, but before I could get on the bridge and race home, I had to get through the toll bridge. And, and, you know, the the meter maid at the time, uh, God bless them, they, uh, they had rules in place. And for one reason or another, I didn't have any cash on me. I didn't have enough change to pay the, you know, two and a half, three bucks to get across the bridge. Um, and uh, despite my uniform and my best intentions, she wasn't about to let a 98 Camry and a first Lieutenant Bobby Wolf get through that gate. And, uh, and so we, uh, we, we hit, pulled off to the side. I filled out my forms in triplicate and promised uh, to pay the Port Authority uh, their $3 at some point down the road. And, uh, and then off I went. <laughs> the whole world is falling apart. And uh, I will tell you, <laughs> There was nothing that was going to sway uh, sway them. Uh, they they had to get. Uh, they weren't going to raise that bar for anybody. Like the toll booth operators on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, who would not have had an opportunity to watch the attacks unfold on TV, pilots of aircraft arriving from overseas were also in the dark, living in the world of September 10th. F-15 pilots Jowler Stodick and Squat Fega would be directed to investigate a Learjet approaching the east coast of the United States who had not been in contact with air traffic control. In particular, there was one intercept on an airplane that it, that it sounds like they could not, they were not able to get a hold of them on the radio or they were not in contact with this airplane on the radio for whatever reason, not sure why. But, right. uh, so they want us to intercept them, figure out what kind of airplane it was, and uh, and then get a tail number for them if, if we could do that. And so that's what we did. I ran an intercept and rejoined uh, into uh, close formation on, on this airplane. And it was a, it looked to me like a uh, citation jet of some kind, you know, business mm -hmm. jet sort of thing. And so again, squat was just back in trail. Um, and as I flew formation on this airplane and I got close enough to, to try to read a tail number, and at that point I realized it said U.S. Army on the side of the airplane. So this is an Army airplane, and we eventually were able to get them up on the radio. Yeah. So the, uh, the, kind of, the conversation kind of went, you know, we figured out who they were and what they were doing, and they, they said, we're an Army uh, airplane with a DV code, meaning we're carrying a, probably a, a general of some, some type to a destination. So we asked him where he's going, and he said he's going into Andrews Air Force Base, which is right there. And so, so we were instructed to tell him that he he, he was going to have to divert; he could not land at Andrews Air Force Base. And so, uh, I think Squat Squat was doing all the talking on the radio, and he said, "Hey, you've been directed to divert. Uh, Andrews is closed. Uh, you can divert to uh, to Richmond, Virginia." And the pilot came back and said, no, we've got a DV code and, uh, and we need to get into Andrews. So we're going to Andrews. At that point, it was clear to Captain Stodick and Colonel Faga 
that the pilot of the Army aircraft likely had no context on the events of the day, but they also had to entertain the possibility that the aircraft could have been another flight hijacked by terrorists. Armed with two AIM-9 Sidewinder missiles, Colonel Squat Fega made an extraordinary radio call to communicate the gravity of the situation. And, it, and the radio call from Squat was, well, I've got two AIM-9s on my airplane that say you're not going into Andrews. At that point, the pilot realized that that was probably not going to happen. Yeah, it was just a matter of how do I quickly communicate that this is a very unusual situation and, uh, and you're just going to have to go with the flow here. Even for those who had knowledge of the events, but had not seen footage of the attacks, making the mental shift from the world of 9-10 to the world of 9-11 could be met with internal skepticism. For Lieutenant Peter Braxton, flying his first operational mission in the KC-10, the events of the day seemed so over the top that he initially harbored suspicions that radio calls from NORAD and his aircraft commander's fears of a nuclear attack might be a grand hoax orchestrated by his squadron as a secret initiation rite for new hires. This is hours, hours into my first operational flight in the KC-10, and he's telling me this, and I have no idea why he's, what, what's, why. I thought I missed a briefing. I thought he was trying to stress me out or tell me something completely hyperbolic and outrageous to see how I would react. I thought this might be a part of the, the new guy initiation. Um, when we contacted New York Center, they gave us pilot discretion five to 50,000 feet. While that radio call from air traffic control saying that all airspace above New York City was entirely clear of aircraft helped Lieutenant Braxton understand that the crisis was real, he and his aircraft commander would have to get creative to discover news of the day, as they would be tasked to stay airborne for another 12 hours. Now, the Colonel, being the seasoned as he was, the ADF, the Automatic Direction Finder instrument, is actually like an AM radio. And he was mm -hmm. dialing up frequencies in the ADF to try to listen to AM radio stations on the ground. So over in New York, like there's a famous one called 1010 Winds or AM 1010. He was mm -hmm. trying to figure out from public sources, you got to remember, this is 2001, way before the internet. Facebook, Skype, anything was you know in your cockpit and, and giving you kind of real-time information or Twitter. Um, we were doing our very best to try to figure out what was happening. Scott Lindholm and the crew of Century 4-0 would use a similar approach to gather information. Trying to find out you know what exactly is going on and you know we think uh, first a small plane's running into the, one of the World Trade Centers. Um, I dial up on the we have a ADF I don't know if you've ever flown like a Cessna or something or old Cessna, you know, an NDB approach probably. So we had ADF, but, you know, it could do, double up as a AM radio. So um, I tuned up on the ADF, you know, some old head flight engineer once showed me how to do it. And so I'd always do it, just get the news or whatever. You listen to something to listen to. Um, so uh, tuned that up and we were getting, I don't know what radio station, but, you know, we were getting a little bit more information on what was going on. Uh, you know, it was fire at the World Trade Center, and uh, it appeared a second plane had hit the World Trade Center and uh, the other building. And uh, so, yeah, that was our one of our main sources of information, really. And uh, with the guys we were just talking, they're like, "Wow, let's try to get some information and figure out what's really going on." And my uh, my engineer, Scotty Lindholm, was like, "Hey, I'm going to turn on the ADF." And we had one of the old-fashioned ADFs, and I don't think they even teach how to do it how to tune it up with beat freaks oscillation and whatnot but he got a good radio and uh we were getting tons of information once captain van dusen's AWACS arrived in the dc area the radar operators established contact with fighter jets to continue sanitizing all of the airspace around new york and washington dc in order to stay airborne for the remainder of the day the AWACS would need to refuel presenting another first time experience for the aircraft commander I said, guys, I just want to do an orbit between the Twin Towers and uh, the Pentagon. And it was because that's where we were going to go. And that's the information we got. And I, we relied back like, no, perfect. We'll send you guys some KC-10s and air refueling. And I'm like, oh, boy, I've never done a KC-10 air refueling. So we'll see how that works. While Captain Van Dusen had air refueled from a KC-135 Stratotanker, he had never been taught to refuel behind the KC-10 extender. I don't. He, I'm pretty sure he'd never seen a KC-10 uh, 
uh, behind the tanker. I'd probably maybe in a couple of years and see one or two as a flight engineer. And it's, yeah, it's a different thing. I mean, it's difficult enough behind a, a KC-135, which is a similar size aircraft. And now you're behind this, looks like a giant spaceship in front of you, you know, and the, the bow wave and the wake from that plane is, is tremendous. And Transferring 90,000 pounds of fuel from the KC-10 to the AWACS took a full 40 minutes, and despite having never trained to do so, Captain Van Dusen aced this on-the-job training moment. Yeah, he got up there and took 90,000 pounds like it was nothing. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Back on the ground, military personnel around the country prepared for missions to come. C-5 pilot Bobby Wolf was eventually allowed to cross the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and join his squadron at Dover Air Force Base. Um, I did uh, race back to Dover Air Force Base, uh, you know, shortly thereafter uh, we went, you know, they they started assigning crews into different levels of alerts. And before orders were even issued from the National Command Authority, leadership at Dover prepared their team for the future the aircraft commander and, and basically looked at everybody and said, uh, you know, folks, if there's any question, um, we're going to war and prepare yourself for a long haul and know that you're doing the right thing. Uh, and with that, we kind of uh, terminated and ended the, the brief and uh, went back into uh, alert status and, and waited to find out uh, where we're going next. And he was right. And he was right. There was, there was no question about it. And um, and so we didn't know where we were going or when we were going, but we knew we'd be going soon. As the day progressed, fighter squadrons started sending additional aircraft to relieve those patrolling the skies around the country. They were just getting as many as soon as the jets could on the, on the 11th. Throughout the rest of that afternoon and that evening, as soon as jets came available they threw two shifts in the air. And by that time, an AWACS was airborne to start doing command and control. And they started, First Air Force started building some type of uh, command structure, but we just kept feeding two ships into the NORAD region. Uh, I'm sorry, into the, the National Command uh, area and um, and the New York area, uh, and deconflicting de- with Atlantic City and Otis, you know, flying F-15s from uh, Massachusetts. It happened fast. It happened fast. And on his first day at work, Lieutenant Peter Braxton would refuel many of those fighter aircraft. And all of the fighters, the F-15s and the F-16s that were on TV flying up and down the Hudson and the East River, we refueled all of those 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 fighters because um we were there all day <laughs> we were there from shortly after 9 a.m until well after dusk um i want to say it was around 14 hours i do have none of the service members supporting the national security response on 9 11 had briefed or trained for the mission that day but reflecting on their experience Many recall that they did have training and a shared understanding of how rules of engagement can guide actions in unexpected circumstances. I will say one of the eeriest things of that day, um, and again, as a as a human being, not just a a person on an AWACS, I'm just doing my job right. That's that that's job number one. We train for that even in the most um, surreal circumstances. You just do your job. We had trained quasi accidentally, but we had trained for this very situation. Um, and, and, and it really brought to the forefront the importance of a good rule of engagement, ROE, because if we didn't have the ROE to stand on, um, you, you don't want a lot of subjective decision making. You want to have very clear criteria for what is a friend, what is an enemy. I can tell you that we certainly never prepare for that scenario as far as the specifics mm-hmm. of, all right, you're, you're now uh, thinking about shooting down a friendly civilian airliner. So so certainly, obviously, that scenario never really came into play because I think but, the culture did pre- prepare us in the fact that certainly as F-15 pilots, a lot of what we do is identifying airplanes and knowing that uh, pressing the, the pickle button, which releases a weapon, is a huge you're taking on you're you're taking a life at that point it's a huge responsibility and so it it, it doesn't go lightly in any mission I mean, whether you're firing in an enemy adversary or, or 
you know, whatever you've been tasked to, to shoot at. So say, all right, this is a big responsibility. And now it's a lot different than I've ever thought about doing in my life. But, um, you know, I'd at least thought about that scenario or the, the, the generalities or the, you know, how do you, how do you run an ID criteria? When are you going to hit that pickle button? And it's not a, it's not a quick and bravado kind of decision. It's a, it's a thought out. I am, I'm taking a life here. So I better know that uh, this is the right thing to do. The fighters airborne that day would not be called upon to fire on a civilian airliner. Instead, the passengers and crew of Flight 93, the fourth aircraft to be hijacked, would learn about the world of 9-11 and take matters into their own hands. As the passengers attempted to regain control of the aircraft from the hijackers, the Boeing 757 lost control and crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, killing everyone on board. Looking back on the extraordinary events of the day, radar operator Kelly Strong recalls the emotional impact of seeing the skies over the United States cleared entirely of aircraft in minutes. The eerie thing was watching the aircraft just dwindle off that air picture. Kind of like when you watch the water hit the, the sand on a beach and then you watch it recede, that's what it looked like on the scope is all these dots and indicators of aircraft just ebbed away. I mean, it, it, it was just the most remarkable thing until there were literally five or six aircraft airborne, you know. With the skies above the entire United States empty, flight engineer Scott Lindholm recalls passing one particular aircraft on their return to Tinker Air Force Base. Uh, as we were on the way back to Tinker, the mission crew was telling us, you know, the Air Force One is, you know, 300 miles north of us going the other way. You know, I think at that point the president was heading back to Washington, D.C. Captain Van Dusen remembers the journey home with a crew that experienced the transition into a new world. Yes, we, it was different because you get you drive home and you're like, all right, what just happened? All, all 37 of us were like, I bet your parents are worried about us. What is going on? And I just remember it was a quiet ride home and then I was still just awake i just you know how you have to have an unwind after a trip and you're already up for 15 hours and you still can't sleep just trying to catch up on the news of what everybody else saw versus what i didn't see i only have an airborne and yeah you could see some of the smoke and you're like okay this is surreal things have changed and yeah headed home for the night and wife was scared like where, where have you been what's been going on and then I, I probably sat up for a couple hours watching the news because I really didn't know what had happened. You know, I never, you know, people watched a lot of that live on TV and I was just, we were just kind of catching up. It was just right. mind blowing. Yeah, life changing, yeah. And KC 10 pilot Peter Braxton recalls the new world he entered upon landing after a 14 hour mission. And we landed, opened, opened the cockpit door, and an airman, full black, fat, flak vest, M16 helmet, chin strap, shows up at the door and asks for my ID. And it was literally, it was like Red Dawn or any other movie you've seen in the 80s where you go into a time machine where you leave and everyone's drinking their coffee and, you know, and then you land and it's war. Kelly Strong recognized the world would be different, but like all Americans, felt a grave uncertainty about the future. But this was, this was such an unknown. Like we, we did not know what was going to happen after an attack on, on the homeland. We, we, we'd never considered that something of this magnitude could happen. And so I think we were all within our own, um, professionally, we were understanding things were, were gonna be different. We didn't know what that would look like, but also personally, um, you know, every American felt some of the pain of that day. Uh, and we felt it acutely because we listened to it and watched it unfold. It was, um, yeah, a somber is a pretty, pretty good, <laughs> good way to summarize that. And F-16 pilot Heather Penny remembers that the success of her mission was accomplished not with military weaponry, but through the bravery of the passengers and crew of Flight 93. Heather recalls that moment of silence as she left Andrews Air Force Base, flew over the burning Pentagon, and scanned the horizon for an aircraft filled with Americans who joined together to make the ultimate sacrifice for her and for us. There was nobody in the sky. It was so quiet. 
it was just surreal. And I look down and I see the the Pentagon and the the black smoke and we head out over Pennsylvania and we never found anything. Yeah. It, yeah. And the passengers on flight 93 they did the mission. They're the heroes. 9-11 was a remarkable day of firsts. Jeff Van Dusen was on his first flight as a mission commander and would air refuel from a KC-10 for the first time in his life that day. Peter Braxton was on his first operational mission flying a KC-10. And Heather Penny and Phil Stodick would launch for the first time in American history on missions with authorization to shoot down a commercial airliner. But like Heather said, their mission was ultimately achieved by a group of people they had never met and would know only in spirit. The passengers and crew of Flight 93 joined the first responders and the armed forces to protect and defend their country that day. Last month, on the 20th anniversary of the 2001 attacks, President Bush honored the men and women of Flight 93 at the field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where they gave their lives for their country. His words are a poignant reminder of the debt we owe to those who serve in any capacity and the bright light of the human spirit that shone through the darkness of that fateful day. I'd like to close by reading a part of his remembrance. In the sacrifice of the first responders and the mutual aid of strangers, in the solidarity of grief and grace, the actions of an enemy revealed the spirit of the people, and we were proud of our wounded nation. In these memories, the passengers and crew of Flight 93 must always have an honored place. Here, the intended targets became the instruments of rescue, and many who are alive now owe a vast unconscious debt to the defiance displayed in the skies above this field. In those fateful hours, we learned other lessons as well. We saw that Americans were vulnerable, but not fragile that they possessed a core of strength that survives the worst life can bring. We learned that bravery is more common than we imagined, emerging with sudden splendor in the face of death. We vividly felt how every hour with our loved ones was a temporary and holy gift, and we found that even the longest days end. Many of us have tried to make spiritual sense of these events. There is no simple explanation for the mix of providence and human will that sets the direction of our lives. But comfort can come from a different sort of knowledge. After wandering in the dark, many have found that they were actually walking step by step toward grace. Mm -hmm.